Well, welcome, Andrew, and uh, everybody, to what looks like the seventh in our series on the cross and creation. Yep. It's it's meandering through the topic. It is. Um, but at least it's. Uh, I think there's some value in that seriously because possibly of almost all Christian topics, uh, nothing is as paradigm challenging to the evangelical mind as what uh, the doctrine of penal substitution um, might mm. or might not mean. And I think in replacing any um, mental model, uh, you can't do it with words, you just got to do it by a gradual approach. So tonight, what we're going to do is really focus on an alternative metaphor, or at least range of metaphors, um, to uh, substitute and supplant the penal substitution model. Uh, I think, just a recap on what we're trying to do, um, when we first conceived of this series, I think it was Janet, you, who suggested we call it Cross and Creation, and that's proving to be quite um, uh, prescient the more we go on. Uh, I think um, what we did talk about was that there tended to be two alternative streams in a lot of Christian theology, the creational stream, which emphasised, let's call it Pelagian. By the way, I uh, discovered that... (coughs) Pelagius is another guy who's uh, like misunderstood. Origin, uh, misunderstood. Yeah. Um, let's say an optimistic view of humanity and, and creation versus the cross one, which yeah. was, let's just say, a negative view of humanity where in many um, quarters you'd begin with the idea that our primal state is hostility to God. We are enemies to God. So quite contrast. Mm. Um, so rather than having an either or, I mean, we, we don't like the penal substitution model, we've critiqued it, but we're really looking for something that positions the cross rather than in an either or in two camps, positions the, the central message of Christianity back in creation in Genesis 1, putting it simply. In many ways, we're probably following in the footsteps of the patristics, but since nobody much reads the patristics today, it can appear we're novel. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's wonderful. <coughs> okay. Um, so our goal, um, just uh, what I'll do is um, brief introduction. Then Andrew, you're going to go through the, the slides. Yeah, well, essentially you're going to develop for us because uh, the adoption mm. model. As uh, um, and then after that, um, in the second section, I just want to go back to some of the broader philosophical contours that we laid out for this. Inquiry and the way the question the, the, of what I'll say in the second part, the critical thing is the question you asks asked determines everything, and finding a better question is in general the way that most inquiry in any field goes forward. And we've been working on a question, and actually um, I've been refining my the question, which is what you're finding better and better ways to express the question. That's the second part. And uh, or perhaps that we might finish there. I'm not sure. Depends how the flow goes. But the third part would be to actually look at the scriptures on adoption and the headlines of that is that, funnily enough, the word atonement um, hardly occurs in the New Testament. If it does mm-hmm. at all, 
So it's in interesting it's got such a Guernsey, yep. since the word isn't actually there in the New Testament. The word that is there in the New Testament is adoption. It's not just there, incidentally. It frames three, only used by Paul. Um, and it literally means positioning as sons and with the idea of sons being heirs, so rather than just kind of a genetic birth to a familial relationship. Mm. But the three, in the three occasions he uses it, it's absolutely central to his argument, Romans, Ephesians and Galatians. So that, that's prima facie evidence to... So, seems to be pointing in that direction <laughs> that you're, you're on a winner with the uh, adoption model. Um, so... Um, over to you. Okay. So, uh, for those watching, you don't have the handout in front of you, and we might work out a way that you can see the handout. But there are a number of slides, <coughs> and uh, the front slide just says the atonement metaphors. Um, Tony and I were talking about this. The, even the word saying atonement metaphors, what, what they are, are metaphors that are used to describe the death of Jesus, and particularly what what was achieved by the death of Jesus. and We call them atonement metaphors because everyone else does, but we, 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 we're not always convinced that's the best word to use. So, but the atonement metaphors, uh, that, you know, said, we're, we're looking at two different theories, an adoption dominion sort of theory versing against a wrath and judicial theory, which is commonly called penal substitution. And so this is a biblical thought experiment into the possible theories that are actually supported by the, the, the evidence, the biblical metaphors. Atonement theories um, are deductive in that you, you have your theory, your general theory, and then you work back to find evidence in scripture. And what we need to do every now and then is more of an inductive process where we, we look at the evidence and go back and see if we need to develop an alternate theory. The problem is, once you've got a theory, you tend to protect it, and then you can... No, you humans don't do that, do they? No. Sure. Other people. Other people. Other people. Other people. I've heard and Christians never do that. <laughs> no, we wouldn't do it. Because yeah. we're so... We submit to scripture. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what we do. We submit to scripture. And sometimes that submission's harder than... Can, can I make a point about metaphor? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I think we should have a whole talk just on metaphor one day. Yeah, let's not. But uh, well, not. Yeah, yeah, that, one, no, no, one no I think that it would be a very good yeah. idea. Um, I did introduce the idea of governing, a governing metaphor. Yep. Uh, and I think that these two alternatives you're talking about are not just a, a incidental metaphors. They seem to be metaphors that govern a whole spectrum of sub-metaphors. Yeah, because whether we like it or not, um, the point you made last time is your mind tends to lock into something simple mm. and once it's locked in, then it, it, it views every other metaphor through one metaphor. And so I, I'd want to say we, we're supposed to be a little bit more even-handed with the metaphor. Yeah, and the problem with penal substitution, it's, it's a marketing success story because it's a really simple idea, yeah. dumbed-down simple idea that's easy to get. Yep. And, 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 in, and appeals to instinctive primal fears, uh, easy to market. It's great branding of success. Yep, and it, it appeals to people who are not convinced God intends good towards them. It, it appeals to the dark, the, the, the despairing side of humanity. It's got everything going for it, yep. in other words. And, yeah. yep, and it also had the state behind it because... Oh, that's even better. I know. Yeah. It's a very on. handy, it's a very handy mental model if you're a king or a yeah. prince or something. Yeah. Because... 
Yeah, there's all sorts of things. So, all right, I've written down, extracted um, seven metaphors, some on the third page. Uh, the victory, reconciliation, brackets, adoption, redemption, exchange, example, and expiation and propitiation. And so, look, different people, if you open up a different um, uh, systematic theology, they'll, they'll, they'll say you've got anywhere between three and 11 metaphors. I, I, I think it's easiest to play with seven of them because you've got to clump them together. And let's, let's just go straight into the next page where one of the, the, the old theories that... Um, we've well got to be careful here because I, I think you, you just said the, the doctrine of penal substitution. And one of the things that um, grabbed my attention 40 years ago was how atonement theories didn't get capital letters and they were just called theories. And there, there is something about penal substitutionary atonement which is not treated like a theory, it's treated like a doctrine. Yeah. Um, and we fall into that trap, we're thinking, no, it's, it's, a, it's a theory, we've got some metaphors and we, we, we're trying to have a guess at what happened, what, what actually happened in that mechanism that is Christ's death. Anyway, for a long time, there was a, a big focus on the, the victory metaphor and it, it wasn't so much as a theory, but it was a focus. And the, the, the Christ's victory, um, I think was seen by everyone as a strange victory because it wasn't the sort of victory where you've gone out into a battlefield and won. It's a victory that you've won by doing exactly the opposite. So everyone was aware, but that, that was sort of the, the place people went to to start talking about what Jesus' death had done, that, that it had won a victory for us. But as we, um, as time went on, if you go to the next page, uh, things started get, getting complicated in the 11th century when Anselm was pondering this, and we had Tony talk to us about Anselm about two or three months ago. And the, the metaphor that is problematic, and so I've got in, on, I think, the fourth page, understanding the, the divisive metaphor, because a lot of this debate about atonement theories um, really hangs or rotates around this idea of propitiation. If, if that idea is wrong, or if, we're, we're, if, if that word propitiation isn't the correct word to be using, then, uh, then everything changes. That's why we end up with two very different uh, schools of thought. But Anselm certainly had a, a propitiation idea. Could I just clarify something? Sure. By divisive you mean um, it's, it's the metaphor is based upon some sense of hostility between two parties or what, what do you no, mean no, by sorry. that? No, sorry. No, I mean that <clears throat> when, when, when people start debating atonement theories, the thing that, the, the, the metaphor that causes most division is the propitiation oh, okay. metaphor. <clears throat> so it, the, uh, how you read propitiation, because there, there was a time when the RSV was being printed where a whole lot of scholars didn't want the word propitiation in it. They thought expiation is fine because something was done to deal with sin but they didn't want that propitiation idea where the anger of God was averted. So a modern because I struggle with the difference between propitiation and expiation oh. but it, it, propitiation has the idea of appeasement in it, isn't yeah. it? Appeasing an angry God. Yeah. That's central to what that word means. That's right. It, Absolutely. So yeah. And so that, that's little, little excursus. That, that, that's the problem when they've found the word, uh, there's a Greek word hilsterion 
which doesn't turn up very often, and and so it's we, we translate it atonement or sacrifice of atonement, just wondering what to do with it. But they've they've found an example of two where where um, Tiberius was offered a hilasterion. He was offered a gift from a town, and it had nothing to do with wrath, nothing to do with anger. No one was in trouble, and so that that pushes back on how we've chosen... And look, interpretation's difficult, particularly when you start hundreds of years ago without access to all the documents we've got now. So you've got to be, give the guys a break. But um, there, there's a lot of dispute over whether that whole wrath idea had to be appeased at all. And uh, we spoke about this before. It could have just been God was really indig indignant that we wrecked up his plan. And when... Christ pays for sins, whatever that me mechanism is, there, there's no need for the wrath, the, the indignation. But what happens in, in the penal substitution argument, um, you, you've sort of got this interesting calculus where the death of Christ in itself isn't enough. It's, uh, the death of Christ is only valuable if the wrath of God can be poured out on him. So you, it's sort of a double step um, that you don't really see clearly explained in Scripture. So it's easily disputed. So Anselm, if you go over the page, <coughs> if, if God was wrathful, it was because he was like a feudal lord and his honour had been uh, taken in some way. And so in the same way as a feudal lord had, to, had the right to get his honour back, uh, God had the right to get his honour back, so somebody had to be killed because of what we did. Well, just to back that up, the mental model that Anselm was working in was insult. Yeah. Uh, so the opposite of an honour is an insult. And if, if, a, if, particularly in the medieval world, if a servant insulted yep. um, an owner or a prince, it was a terrible thing to do. And, and so the flip side of not honouring is it's insulting. Yep. It's sin as insulting to yep. God. Exactly. And uh, which, when, when you've got that idea in your mind, and then you read <coughs> the, the parable of, say, the lost son, where the, the father embarrasses himself by running and pulling up his tunic so you can see his legs. And so you've got the idea that if the father is supposed to be God the father, you've got God the father who's prepared to embarrass himself to get his son back, but then you've got Anselm saying no. Well, <laughs> he doesn't want to even be insulted. It, it, you go, yeah, he insults in, himself. In Anselm, Anselm didn't, I don't know if he read the parable of the prodigal son, but he certainly didn't use it. No. Um, in his mental model of who God was. Um, he did not have an image of God as the father. Let's work from that. It's God as the insulted prince. Yeah. Now, the, when we got to the Reformation, <coughs> uh, they, they rightly felt that, that Anselm got it wrong. And what they did is they replaced the honour of a feudal lord with the, 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 the righteousness of a judge. And that idea of righteousness is problematic and again, that, that could be a whole discussion. <coughs> um, I'd point you back to one of the talks many years ago by Edwin Judge where he went through uh, righteousness and how, how it's, uh, it, it's quite possible. Uh, a lot of people have noticed that we use the word righteousness differently to how the Greeks used it, which goes without saying. And there is probably a difference between God's righteousness and what everyone else thinks is righteous. And so it's easy for us to think righteousness is about law, but it would seem that when God's talking about God's righteousness, it's about right relationship. 
And so you, you, you've got to make a choice there. Do, do, do you think when the Bible uses righteousness, we should be using the traditional human way of thinking about righteousness in terms of some law? Or should we be actually thinking, no, God's saying God's righteousness because he's trying to reframe that whole word? Well, they're fundamentally contrasting paradigms. In the penal model, righteousness is a code. Uh, <coughs> and the code is abstracted. Yep. And uh, one of the things that makes that model not work is the code is greater than the judge yeah. in all human systems. Yes. Um, you know, nobody is above the law, quote unquote. Yep. And so applying that model to God, you've got a problem that God, there's a code which is bigger than God to which he must abide. Yeah. Yield. So that's one model of righteousness, possibly in the back of a lot of people's minds. Mm. They haven't thought it through. Um, where it becomes, I think, really um, uh, destructive psychologically is that in a lot of Christian church circles I've been in, uh, there is that mental model, but what happens is nobody knows quite what's written in the code uh, yeah. except the, perhaps the elders of the church or somebody else. So, you know stereotypical bad behaviour can be piled into that. that. What you're saying, Edwin said, is yeah. that, no, no, that's just, uh, this is like uh, apples and oranges. Righteousness doesn't mean that. It means a right relationship. And I think one thing Edwin said to me implied in that was he's pretty sure he'd seen the word um, written across a marketplace. Yes. Um, in other words... Um, Yes. In, in one of the ancient cities. In other words, uh, this marketplace runs yep. by right relationships. <clears throat> we trust the suppliers, we trust the prices. You know, that creates a um, concord within which we can work. Yep. Uh, yeah. So this is where I'll raise your Edwin Judge one. <laughs> if I see your Edwin Judge and raise your one. Um, I remember when he was talking about... Um, because the cosmos is a, is a perfect system that, that we're running, then it, it, it's not... Um, you, you do things to protect the system, and because there's a chain of being in humanity, uh, it, it's, it wasn't inappropriate if, say, a slave girl got out of line for her master to beat her, and that was called righteousness. That was a right relationship, because she, he was bringing the whole cosmos back into order. And you think that's, that's not the way we would think of righteousness mm -hmm. at all. But depending on what your order is, um, that will shape what, what comes out of it. Anyway, let's, let's flick over to the slide that says, uh, what's, what's the purpose? So I've got three columns there, one that just lists the atonement metaphors in much the same order that we went anti-clockwise around there, uh, clockwise rather. Then there's the, the Roth judicial theory and the adoption dominion theory. And what what I've done here is quite simply ask the question, um, what, what's the purpose of the parable? Is it, is, it, is it making a statement about the result of what happened because of Jesus' death? And this is subtle, I know. Or was this the purpose of um, the, the... Yeah, was this the purpose of his death? So... It's a tricky one to wrap your mind around, and I actually numbered it over the, the side there, where if, if you've got seven different metaphors, which one do you think? Like, it's a bit of a self-diagnosis. Which one's most important to you, and which one's least important? So most important to me is seven, and least important is, is one. And you, I've got in yellow with the, um, the propitiation uh, metaphor in, in penal substitution atonement, 
that that is a purpose for the death of Christ. Christ, where where I, I think that's much more a result. You know, it's just when when sin is dealt with, then the indignation of God just goes away because it's been dealt with. That's what he's indignant because his creation plan has been upset and it, it's put back in track. But that's that's a good exercise, I think, for everyone to do and and just think through which of those. You know, look at the verses and which of those ideas do you uh, wait and in what you know, in what weightings and order do you give them? So I, I think no one's going to de- deny that uh, victory over Satan was a result. But whether it was a purpose or not, um, I mean, it, it, it's subtle, I know. But what, what I think are very strong in all, all the camps is that... Uh, it's obvious that, that a sacrifice, a great payment has been made. Um, and what we do with the metaphors, sometimes we start to treat them like allegories rather than metaphors because the point of the metaphor might be just a great pr- price was paid to achieve this rather than, oh, who was it paid to and who was it paid from? And we just turn metaphor into allegory. See, when, when you're going through, you've got to, you've got to be conscious of what are you doing. This is why we need a good talk on well, I think, I think I think to that one about sacrifice, I know that um, Brad Jerzak's very good on that, that if a father was sending their son to a hostile territory and they knew that the son was going to very likely get killed in that hostile territory trying to bring some benefit to the people, but sent the son anyway, you would say that was a sacrifice. No penalties paid to anyone in the same way that we, we human beings regularly are in a situation where we might need to make a sacrifice, i.e. deny ourselves something in order to get a benefit for someone else. You know, if I, someone's drowning in the surf and I dive in, I might endanger myself and sacrifice my well-being for theirs. No yeah. penalties paid to anyone. That's, right. That's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, the trick for young players in that is you've got a whole Old Testament sacrificial system. So people assume that should be freighted into that New Testament idea, freighted into that metaphor. Yes, not, indeed. Not necessarily sure that's the case. And as, as I spoke about Abraham in Genesis 22, and I, I mentioned Leviticus, I, I, I think there's a great theory, a great way of reading um, the sacrificial system as something humanity required, and God's actually toning down the sacrificial system. Because he, he keeps on saying... Well, if you're going to kill something, just you know, kill a calf. And if you can't afford a calf, kill a goat. And if you can't afford a goat, just kill two birds, right? It seems like God's trying to has realised that humans like to kill stuff when we're feeling a bit insecure about our relationship with God. And He's saying, can we just put a lid on, a, on it? And I, I don't think the sacrificial system is for God. I think it's for us because He says, I don't desire, need the blood of bulls and goats. And so I always thought, at best, it's a teaching aid to show us that something's going to be needed. But as, as I've grown older, I've just thought, no, it's not just a teaching aid to know that, you know, to recognise Christ. It's, it, it, was, it was to limit um, human behaviour because we, growing up in the 21st, 20th, 21st century, we, we don't appreciate what ancient Near East was like in terms of uh, sacrificial systems. Uh, if we go over the page, the exchange metaphor, look, I, I mentioned this one particularly. Again, I've highlighted the, the, the righteousness word. The, the exchange, the, clearly, something has been exchanged in that um, 
there is a quality about Jesus and his sonship and being an heir that we participate in now. So somehow we've moved from one state to another. No one's dying, denying that. What, what happens though in a lot of our sing, singing of choruses and a, a lot of our preaching, we concentrate on the whole exchange idea. And it's, it reminds me of the... Um, you may have seen the film with Tom Hanks called Bridge of Spies where there's a U-2 pilot shot down and then... There's no exchange, right? It's a metaphor. There's, 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 like, I, I agree the state has changed and, and we benefit as if an exchange has occurred, but that, that's not what actually happens. And uh, again, I think we've, we've got to be careful how we uh, use the, the metaphors. And the next page where I just quickly go through the exchange metaphor. If, if a, people argued, argued um, that a ransom was paid to Satan, so Satan was paid by God and the payment was to Satan that you go, okay. We move to Anselm and and the reformers and we end up having different forms of appeasement of God. And the problem with that is the logic of God paid God. You know, it just sort of it, it's an odd it's it's odd metaphor to use if if someone's, you know, taking coins out of left pocket to put the coins in the right pocket. It's just yeah, anyway, that, that's odd and people have noticed that that's odd. What, what I'm suggesting on the right there is the dominion of humanity, that certainly something was paid by God, that something's Jesus, that it was costly to God to save us. But going back to the sacrificial idea, the, the reason it was necessary was something about humanity required it rather than God required it. God condescends to do the sacrifice because of what humanity um, required. So it's not to appease God and, and we can go in another little while to more about what that means. Um, over the page, the adoption theory. So I, I have not gone through all those different metaphors um, but as, as we mentioned, there, there is a difference between propitiation which is about the aversion, averting um, uh, wrath and actually just the, the payment of a liability which is expiation. The, the example metaphor, I must say, listening to Jerzek, I became much more reflective about example because, I don't know, there's, there, there's something about my I don't know, theological baggage that says that you can't just say Christ's death is simply an example. It had to achieve more than that, right? So you just, yeah, I think that's a problem that, that, that I have um, and a lot of people have, but people will argue very much that the, the example of Christ is more exposure to the truth of how the universe works. It, it's actually showing us that that a, a violence model doesn't work. It's actually... Well, not just doesn't work. It's not God's it's, way. Yeah, it's not his way. And I think that, um, like you, I've uh, listened with interest. I think Brad is very good on the example metaphor. Yeah. Uh, it, if you take it out of example and put it into um, that it's introducing a new method of rule and governance, um, then it, it's bigger than just an example. It's the way God runs the show. Um, so I think there's something in that that's important. The other thing that's important, which means where something of this idea of imitation and example needs to be rescued is it's the only way to make sense of a great deal of the use of the cross that Paul 
made in his epistles. Right? So in the penal substitution model, it's Christ who suffers on the cross. But Paul keeps on saying it, I am taking up, I'm participating in his death. Yeah. He said, I, I fill up from what's behind in the sufferings of Christ. Well, that's in, in, incongruous if the sufferings of Christ was the penal substitution model. Mm. It doesn't work at all. What, yeah. what, what's in his mind? But if it's uh, if part of the kind of redemption was this introduces a totally new way of rule to the cosmos and exemplifies it, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And look, it's... I've said this a number of times, the, the, my pathway to this topic was coming from not people who were uh, offended by what penal substitutionary atonement did to their doctrine of God. I came from a very reformed background where hundreds, everyone I knew had a different atonement theory. And it, was, it, it was just coming out of how do, you, how do you make this work? And how do you make things like that work where, yeah, the, Christ dies on the cross but we're still suffering all of a sudden, there are a whole lot of phrases that you have in your atonement theory that just don't don't work. Which I won't go into all those, but um, it was lack of congruity that made me more and more interested in this. And as we peeled back the layers to try and work out how far back do you have to stand before you can reconcile all these. So help us with the adoption metaphor. This is the the one that's adoption dominion theory. Well, look, if if you if you I'd go back to that, that, that idea that, um, that the metaphors are, are, are describing either results or purposes of that, that thing we call the death of Christ. And people have, have assumed certain ideas to make their theory work. So they assume the honour of God or they assume the... Uh, the, the, the righteous judge sort of idea. And so I think if they're allowed to assume stuff, so are we. I look at the adoption metaphor, partly because J.I. Packer is a third part of knowing God said we should look at it. Um, I don't like that book, by the way, just in case you. anyone thinks it's a good idea. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not read it for 40 years. Yeah, You've got to read it again, you wouldn't like it. I wouldn't much. like it. No. But I did, I did, was fascinated by this, this idea of adoption and he said it was the most underrated Theological concept there is, That's and um, I, I think I think he's right at that point. And it, it seems to me that there is there, there's always two two schools of thought. It depends on on what you think the big purpose of God is. And if we started off as just creatures who are supposed to obey, and that was our big problem, then when we don't obey then that's the problem that's got to be solved and you end up going down a penal substitutionary line. But it, it seems to me that we're all always intended to be like God and heirs and image, we were created to be images of God. And so because we're coming from that direction, that's, that should shape the questions we, we ask. So if, if you go over the page where I've got theological terms, <coughs> I've, I've actually just gone through a few terms. A, a, a worldview summary... Anthropology, sin as a cause, sin's result, righteousness and judgment down the side. And I'll just quickly go through it. If, under one theory, God's love is subordinate, as you said earlier, to his moral law, which is somehow legislative. And, and, and that's an odd idea. Where in the adoption theory, God's love results in his fatherly instruction. He gives us law, not, not, not to trip us up, 
but because he, he, he wants us to live in his world and, and know how it works. And I've put there it's metaphysical in that it, because we're in his world which was created for his son to live in and he created human flesh for his son to wear, there is something ethical or meta-ethical about the world we live in. So when God gives us his fatherly instruction, it makes sense for us to, to adhere to it and it, it, it contradicts our own being to actually live alternatively. So under anthropology I've got on one side uh, we're a creature that forgets its place in the created order. That's the big problem in, in the sin model, that we, we just forget who we are. Um, where, on, on the other side, I'm saying that we're made as images of God, we're destined to be like him, we're supposed to be sons and heirs, and yeah, we did forget our place in the created order. We, we thought of ourselves as too lowly. We didn't trust that God intended good for us. We didn't untr- trust his big vision. And that's why Oliver O'Donovan says sin is actually the, the, the refusal to exercise the agency God has given us. It, where the alternative is um, it's a failure to conform to God's moral law and sins are specific failures and, and manifestations. And none of that's really strongly in Scripture. It, it, it's what we project. And righteousness ends up being compliance and reflecting God's righteousness where righteousness, you've got to be careful with the word righteousness, where it's God's law, um, God's rules, where I I think God's righteousness is metaphysical. He's created the world to work a certain way. As I said, he he designed this creation to be able to sustain God the Son in relationship with his people into eternity. So it's, it's a place built for God to live in and we're made of human flesh which is made for God to wear. So righteousness is a metaphysical concept and it, it reflects not a law that is imposed over God, but it reflects the love of God and how relationships actually work. And that's why we talked at the beginning uh, that little matrix about faith in that if, if we don't trust that God intends good to us, then we don't have a real relationship with him. So if, it, if, if we've got to do something just to avoid getting burnt to a cinder, then you go, sure, I trust God. There you go, I'm saved, that's fine, I've avoided that. But if you think there's a reality about relationship, then, then that's not good enough. That, do, that doesn't restore relationship in any real sense. What, when we say our relationship's been restored with God, what most people mean is he's not going to hunt us down and kill us. And you go, no, no, <laughs> it, it's, it's actually better than that. It's much better than that. Um, and when, when we talk about judgment, it, it's easy to think judgment is a judge presiding over a court and, and acting in a judicial manner. It's good to remember that a judge in the Old Testament was the one who was to reconcile and bring out a better end. We obviously remember Deborah and Gideon going into battle, those judges, but by and large the judges were there to, to make things worse. And if there's going to be a judgment, uh, judgment is the word crisis, and there is going to be a moment where the consequences of our metaphysical choices are going to be manifested in some way. Um, but I, I think at that revelation, at that point, it's going to be revealed to us that Christ did much more for us than we even imagine now um, in tidying that up. So they're, they're the, the, the metaphors that uh, you've got to string together and that's, that's, the, that's some of the, the, the raw evidence that you work at to, get, to put your theory th- together. And it is good to 
remember, we said this this afternoon, um, a guy was at, at, at college who had a, a PhD in plasma physics um, made the point that we, we don't actually understand why our kettles work. And we, we managed to make, get up in the morning and have a cup of tea. But, and we can describe what a kettle does and we know what the outcome is, boiling water, but we, to, to pretend we actually understand how that physical thing takes place, um, it, it's more of a description than an understanding. And so it ought not surprise us that we're given these metaphors and we, we can see what Christ has achieved for us, but to, to actually understand the mechanism is sometimes problematic. But why, why it's still worthwhile going through this is you can see that if you get a wrong doctrine, you see doctrine. If, you, if your theory becomes a doctrine, then you start, you start saying dreadful things about God and you end up with a highly dubious ethic. Um, so instead of having an ethic where you might want to uh, rehabilitate people who do wrong, you start to think, no, we've got to be retributive and, and, and punish just to get even. And you go, well, that, that, all of a sudden that just doesn't sound like God, but yeah, that's, that's what people uh, will say. That, that flows out of their doctrine. So the, the question for us all is which theory best fits all the metaphors? So what I would just challenge you to do is keep the metaphors around and when people propose different theories, uh, see how they fit. The, the theory I've got is the dominant metaphor is adoption. There is something about God adopting us as heirs and sons which means that he wants to treat our dominion with integrity. And so rather than overriding our dominion where we chose destruction, uh, enter stage left, the God-man Christ who represents humanity and, and does what we asked for. So very much in my mind, uh, the reason for the death of Christ is because of a human requirement, not because God required it. Thank you. I think that's a good place to stop or pause. I think there's a lot of that.